Well, today I'm excited to continue in this series that we started last week. I mean, that was a, that was a lot. Some people may have felt like that was like a 30 ounce porterhouse you've been digesting for days. Okay. Well, well, we're going to get the filet mignon today, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, and um, go to John chapter 4, and I'm going to uh, continue in this series called The Ministry of Jesus. Now, we're looking at the ministry of Jesus because one thing we're committed to here at Calvary is really learning how to carry the cross. And if you're ever going to learn how to carry the cross to your family, to, to our church, to the community, and then ultimately to the world, you ought to look to the one who bore the cross. You ought to look at his ministry that led to the cross, and you'll, f- you'll figure out how to carry the cross. Now, life has very a, a, a lot of moments in it, a lot of moments in it, and we're not always... Uh, Picking up the signs when God starts first giving us hints about who he is and what he wants to do. Um, Today I want to share with you a message called the second sign. This is called the second sign. Last week I spoke a message called the first miracle. You can go and and, and listen to that message online. You can watch it. Uh, I, I encourage you to do so. But what you'll see today is actually a continuance of sorts. And there's a lot in the Gospel of John between these two passages, which are very important. Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus, where we get John 3.16, that's very important. Jesus ministers to a Samaritan woman at the well, stays in Samaria, and revival breaks out. It's incredible. But then we have this moment that we're going to look at today called the second time, the second sign. Now, how many of you are glad that God gives us second chances? This is, I mean, this is really, really good. I mean, second chances are wonderful. I heard about uh, this story about this guy who was saying, you know, he was just this loud, boisterous guy. And he, he was like, man, blondes are so dumb. They're so dumb. There was this group of blondes right behind him, and he didn't know it. And they said, hey, we're not dumb. And he says, okay, I'll give you a chance to prove it. They said, okay, fine. All right, here you go. What's two plus three? And the group shouted out in confidence, nine. (laughs) And in an awkward pause, looked at each other and said, give us a second chance. Give us a second chance. And then they say, they say, he says, okay, fine. What's two plus four? And one blonde burts out. She blurts out, six. And all the other blondes look at her and say, we need another chance. See, sometimes we need another chance when we think we're right and we're wrong. And other times we need another chance because we were right and decided we were wrong. And God is the God of second chances. And I believe that God wants to speak to us something from this moment when Jesus releases the second sign. 
Let's look at it together in John chapter 4, verse 46. If you have the Bible app, you can launch today's message. All the notes will be there for you, and you can make some notes of your own. Or if you, if you like, there is something called a pen and paper. It still works. John chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 46, and it says this. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. And as he was, he was now going down, his servants met him and told him saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that's one in the afternoon, uh, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, uh, I just want to give you a, a little bit of background um, we, we know that Jesus' first miracle happened here in Cana of Galilee. It's brought up twice that this is the place where Jesus began to what? Manifest his glory. If you read in, in John 2, the reason why he did that, that miracle and that great sign was to manifest his glory. So when he does this second sign, he is manifesting his glory. He is letting people know who he is and what he has come for. Now, uh, Canaan is, is just a tiny village. Um, and it's really uh, uh, just a short distance. It's not very long. It's not that far away from Nazareth. Matter of fact, uh, it, it's actually, you're, you're kind of, Nazareth to Cana is like you travel north a bit and you climb a hill and you come down into a valley and there is Cana, okay? It's just, a, uh, uh, it's not that far away. And, and so Jesus is coming up from Judea. This is Jerusalem. It's like, 50 miles away or so, okay? It's, a, it's, it's quite a distance. So now he's coming back, and actually, if you find, if you read the whole passage, he actually avoids Nazareth, which is on the road. Uh, and it, it, if you read the whole chapter, you find out why. He says, a prophet it has no honor in his own country. He says, I'm not, I'm not being received there. He comes into this city, and the, the Galileans gladly receive him, Okay? So now you're kind of getting the backdrop. Now he is in Cana. He's gladly received. And yet, now comes this interruption in Cana. Now there are three people in this story, okay? Three people I want you to look at today. There are some insights from each one of them that you and I need to glean from. 
that you and I need to look at these three people in this story and say, you know what, there's something I need to learn, something that I need to grab hold of from this story that we just read. Now, these three people are this, the patient, the petitioner, and the physician. The patient, the, the petitioner, and the physician. Now, um, first I want you to see the patient. Because at some point in your life, you're going to be the patient. You're going to be the patient. Now, who was the patient? The patient was the nobleman's son. And remember the verse 46. It says, so Jesus came into Cana of Galilee where he made water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, we don't really get the full picture in that verse of how sick he was, but he was sick to the point of death. He is on death's door, okay? Now, here's what you need to know. He is a nobleman's son. He has every advantage that comes uh, with being a nobleman's son. That means there's probably some influence. It probably had the access to the best medicine that they had that day, but it wasn't working. It wasn't working. And here's, here's what I, I want you to see. There will come a time in all of our lives when the only possible answer is Jesus. There will come a moment where you come on a situation. Listen, young person, you're here. You, maybe you haven't faced this yet. But there will come a moment in your life where wealth can't answer the issue that you're facing. Where your influence, it cannot answer the issue that you're facing. The fame can't bring about the change necessary. Your education can't carry you through this experience. Everyone of us at some point in our life, we are going to get so low that the only place we can look is up to Jesus. And many of us try to avoid that. We fill our lives with all of those other things, the wealth, education, experience, fame, influence. And yet all people of all colors, of all backgrounds will find themselves in a moment where they are the patient. And when you are the patient and the world is crushing down on you, you know what you need in your life? A petitioner. You need a petitioner. You need someone else in your story who will petition God on your behalf. Let's look at this. Let's, let's, let's look at this petitioner. I love, I love the fact that the only reason this petitioner has any access is because Jesus came again. A second time. He's back in the neighborhood knocking on the same doors where he had done miracles before. He's back trying to accomplish a greater purpose. 
And I don't know who I'm talking to today, but you need to know if you're that patient that is under the weight of circumstance and life and sin and brokenness and perhaps a prognosis by which there is no help that man can offer, I want you to know that Jesus will come again. If you had an encounter with God years ago and you said, I remember when God did something in my life back in 1953, I got good news. He will come again. He will come again. Which gives the petitioner a role to play. Now this petitioner is the nobleman. This this nobleman is... uh, His his name in... uh, Or this title in in, uh, Latin is regulos. And that means... That simply means little king. And so he's probably a ruler over an area. Uh, Most theologians believe this man is Jewish. So this is not a Gentile. This is a Jew. And he is ruling over a certain uh, uh, amount of of Caesar's household in some uh, some way. And, and, And we find out a little bit about the nobleman and his role as a petitioner in verses 47 and 48 and it says then it says when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death then Jesus said to him unless you people see signs and wonders you will by no means believe the nobleman said to him sir come down before my child dies now i i I, um, I titled this man the petitioner because that title actually resonates with a title that Jesus gave you. You see, back in Jesus' ministry, we find him going to the temple not once, but twice. And in that temple, he cleanses the temple. And as he's cleansing the temple, he says this, my house shall be called a house of prayer but uh, for all nations, but you have made it, what, a den of thieves. He is saying, listen, you have perverted my intentions for my house. You have made it something it was never meant to be. Now, in a few short years, by the way, that temple would change locations. I mean, and... And it's just a few short years. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he ascends to heaven. Ten days later, there's a feast called Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit comes down and baptizes men and women. By the way, it was men and women on the day of Pentecost. Men and women. I'm going to help some people. It's not the point of today. I don't know who's hung up over the men and women thing, but if that's you, get over it. (laughs) And what happens? The Holy Spirit fills the new temple. And then all of a sudden, now God's temple is in the heart and life and spirit of every born-again, spirit-filled believer. But here's what God never did. He never changed your identity. 
He never changed your identity. He still looks at his sons and daughters and says, my house. My house shall be called a house of prayer. What's everybody call you? Oh, man, they're a great musician. Oh, they're a singer. Oh, man, that guy's a preacher. Oh, man, they are such a student. They are so intellectual. Very few actually are known with this reputation that Jesus actually assigned to his temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer. That one gives themselves to knowing God and praying for others and praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. They are petitioners. Now, I want you to see some things about the petitioner because if you understand the motivation behind the petition, petitioner and, and maybe one detail that you might miss in reading this, you can actually say, all right, now maybe I can start to function as God has said for me to function. First, you need to know this about this nobleman, about this petitioner. He loved his son. He loved his son. He's like, my son is dying. And this is, this is beautiful. He had merely heard about a miracle worker. And this is what he said. I have to try on their behalf. I have to try on his behalf. I have to try to reach him. He merely heard about this miracle that had happened in Canaan, and now all of a sudden he's, he's coming back to the same village. So he goes to meet him. Why? Because love was carrying him to petition Jesus on behalf of his son. Love was carrying him. You say, if that's true, then you ought to be able to find those two married in the scriptures together. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 and 14, it says this, watch. By the way, that is symbolic of prayer and intercession. That's what that means. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be, be brave and be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. He's saying, listen, the fuel for your life as a house of prayer, as a person who will petition God, will be love. It will be love that carries you to watch and intercede that says, man, I heard there's a miracle worker, so my love is going to propel me into a moment of encounter with him. If there's any chance, because of his love for his son, he said, if there's any chance that he can get a miracle, he's saying, it's worth it. It's worth it. I believe that many of us, we, we miss the length that love will carry us when it comes to pursuing Jesus on someone else's behalf. We kind of think, ah, uh, you know, you know, how much can one person do, really? Here's what I found out. The more you love, 
the more God will grace you to get to a place where you can intercede on something on someone else's behalf and something good happen. Now, we also find out about this nobleman that he was humble. So he loved his son and he was humble. You see, he was a nobleman. Not only did he have a family, he had servants. He had people who were, who were under him. And, and, and he could have just sent a servant. However, he came himself. Humility. There is one level in our life of prayer and growing in prayer where we see the value of prayer in someone else's life. We have an issue, so we go to the person we know prays. So we go to them and say, I need to send you to Jesus. And what we're really saying is because we hadn't talked in a while. <laughs> I don't know if we're good, but you, you're his servant. So you, I, I'll send you. But this nobleman said, no. I'm not sending someone else when it comes to this need in my life. I'm going to be the one that goes to meet with Jesus myself. And church, if we're ever going to be that one that sees miracles wrought in other people's life, we can't be just happy that Calvary has daily prayer. Oh, man, our church is a praying church. Well, I'm going to ask you a question. What about you? Are you humble enough to pray. I love Dean Nifaratus. That brother said this. He said, the highest form of pride is prayerlessness. Why? Because it tells God, no thanks. I can handle this. And I want to tell you, the call to prayer has nothing to do with personality types. It has nothing to do with even your gifting it has everything to do with the label that Jesus places on us as the house of prayer. So we take up the role of petitioner in humility. And what do we find out when humility shows up in our life? Notice how God responds to us. Uh, Psalm 138 in the New Living Translation, verse 6 says, Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. James 4, 6 says, but he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What's grace? God's undeserved favor. That means if you come before God, petitioning him in genuine humility, what's he release? His undeserved favor for that situation that you're calling him out, call, calling on him for. That is what happens when we humble ourselves. So listen, why? 
while, while uh, we all want to partner with each other in prayer, don't send a pastor in prayer when God is calling you to the place of petitioning God for the needs that you have in your life. I believe in corporate prayer. I believe in the prayer of agreement. I believe if we'll pray and agree as touching anything on earth, it will be done. I believe it. I ask for it all of the time. I'll pray with you. I'll pray with you. I'll pray with you. But I want to tell you, sometimes you need to say, the servants are staying home. Honey, you're staying home. I'm going to find Jesus for what's happening in my house. It's the petitioner. Now, to this point, those things are incredible. What I'm about to give you next actually will help you more than you could ever imagine. So this petitioner, he limited Jesus. Oh, I love seeing the Bereans in you when I say things like this. All of a sudden, I see the wheels turning. What? He was loving and he was humble And he limited Jesus. All right. This is what he said. He went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son. See, y'all don't know what he's asking for. Because y'all are like, what's Cana? What's Capernaum? Here's what it is. Someone comes to you today in church and says, my relative is sick. I need you to come with me to help them. And we're walking. Okay, fine. Where are they? They are on Fort Island Trail Beach. (laughs) What? This petitioner comes to Jesus, and the distance, some say 15 miles, others say 20. Does it matter when it's beyond one? (laughs) Okay, it's a long way. He's coming to a miracle worker who's coming back to a region where he's worked miracles, and this guy is saying, Cancel all your plans, Jesus. I need you to go on a full day's journey with me. Now, by the way, there is something that you can learn about this. Some of your prayers are too small. You can learn that from this man. Some of you have been asking for only small things. Some of you don't ask for small things. You're like, eh, maybe God's not interested in that. Some of you, your prayers have been so small, you have not asked him for the bigger things. And you need to dare to ask God to work miracles that you could never, ever be able to do on your own. However, there is something about this man compelling Jesus to abandon all of his plans in Canaan to go 15 to 20 miles on foot with him. Why? Why would he do that? Because he sees the possibility of the miracle happening, but he can only see it the way he can see it. He's like, 
God will do it, but he'll do it my way. Which reminds me a lot of this, this story in 2 Kings chapter 5 of a, of a great commander of the armies of Syria named Naaman. Who had, had great conquest. Matter of fact, he had even uh, conquered some of the Israelites. I know that because in his house is a slave girl. A servant girl who is an Israelite. But she knows Naaman. He is Wonderful on the outside, respected of people, riding the horse, all of the accolades. Here is, I have great success in public, but when he takes off the armor, there's the leprosy. And this little servant girl, by the way, who had been taken from family, taken from home, overcome and made to serve in his house, she could have been bitter. And she could have said something like this. I hope you die. But she didn't. This is what she said. She said, Oh, if my master could only see the prophet in Israel, the prophet would heal him. And and then she begins to tell, Hey, you need to go and see this prophet. So, He gets it in his mind. All right, I'll give it a try. But notice what happens, 2 Kings 5.10. It says, and Elisha sent a messenger out. He sends a messenger out. Here comes Naaman, commander of the armies of Syria. Very important guy. Sends a messenger. It says, go wash in that mud puddle called the Withlacoochee seven times. Have you ever seen the Jordan? I have. Man, when it rains, it's pretty muddy. He says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord is God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. He said, I saw this miracle going way differently. (laughs) And aren't you glad for humble people in your life? And his servant speaks up. He said, Master, you know, if he had told you a hard thing, you would have done it. Why don't you just do what he says? And he does. He goes and dips in the Jordan seven times, and he's restored. This is the same thing that's happening to this nobleman. He says, you've got to come and lay hands on my son in order for him to be healed. I think the miracle can only happen the way that I envision it. Let me, let me put it to you this way. He limits Jesus by saying, Jesus, you are limited by distance. You are limited by distance. This is what he is saying in his own confession. You're limited by distance. How many of you are glad Jesus is not limited by distance? Oh, how do I know that? Because he reached halfway around the world from a hill in Jerusalem called Golgotha. And he has washed and cleansed people way over here in the glorious state of Florida. He's not, 
He's not hindered by distance at all. Oh, oh, there's another one. There's another part that he thinks Jesus just, he can't overcome time. He can't overcome time. He's like, you have to come now. You have to come now. Don't you, don't you remember the story of Lazarus? Lazarus got sick and Jesus what? Waited. Oh, this made all the type A people in the room mad. Because they saw that schedule going differently. Have you ever had God answer a prayer before you prayed it? Y'all don't know how good God is. I, was, I remember one time, I had a thought. I was driving through Citrus County. I'm not saying this is going to work for you, but it worked for me. I'm driving down the road, and I had a thought. I'm driving back to all these, all these lakes, all these all this, and rivers and everything, and I'm like, God, the lakes around here is like a, another highway. Man, it's beautiful. Which, I was like, I didn't even say this to God. I was just thinking it. I'm like, man, it would be, I mean, you're in this place. You should have a boat. Just a thought. The next day, my phone rang. Someone called me and said, the Lord spoke to me and said, I'm to buy you a boat. Now, I know all your prayer life just got bigger, right? right? All the men in here, elbow and their wife, come on, honey, join with me. Pray and intercede. You better get baptized in the Holy Spirit because I need a 300 on the back of that thing, okay? Uh, uh, listen. And then when that happened, I remembered I had the thought, and then I prayed. I said, Lord, I thank you for hearing my thoughts like prayers. God's not limited by time. I want to tell it to you this way. You today are sitting in chairs that have been prayed over for 30 years. And the work that God is doing, many of the people who founded this place are now in the great cloud of witnesses. But there's something that never dies. It's their prayer. It's their intercession. It never stops. And Jesus isn't limited by time. And neither are the intercessions of the petitioner. He's not messed up by your time. You are, but he's not. Oh, and this one last one. He limited Jesus because he thought death. His ministry is good, but death, that's where it ends. He, he can't do anything if my child dies. Uh-oh. Now, this good Jewish boy has forgotten that Elijah raised a child from the dead. Elisha raised a child from the dead. And maybe he didn't know that one greater than Elijah was now there, the Messiah. And, I, you know, I can't, couldn't help but notice that, you know, even Lazarus' sister thought Jesus was limited by death. 
And he said, no, no, no. I'm the resurrection and the life. Aren't you glad that on the third day after he gave his life on the cross, Jesus didn't say, Jesus just got up out of the grave. He said, not even death can stop me. And see, here's this man. He's petitioning God, but that Jesus in his mind has limits. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit that you would allow God to take the limits off of your prayer life. Take the limits and the off of God and begin to pray and believe for him to do what you think impossible. I love this. Why? Because this father isn't perfect. That means God takes imperfect people to see his will come to pass in the earth. I'm like, Okay, I'm qualified for that. (laughs) Sometimes our thinking limits God. (laughs) Jesus then says to him, unless you see, you will never believe. I mean, you're just reading the passage. You're like, man, this guy's distraught, Jesus. Don't you care about his emotional makeup? I mean, if Jesus said this in 2020, he would be banned from Twitter. I mean, this nobleman probably is in government, probably a snowflake. In 2020, not here. Why? Because Jesus rebukes him and he doesn't stop praying. He doesn't stop petitioning. He doesn't stop asking. Listen, when you've got limits on God and and God comes and brings some correction to your thinking, don't just back up and say, well, I'm done. I'm done. Because it could be that God is working something in you first before he does something for you in the end. Now, even in the correction, he keeps asking. Now, lastly, let's just look quickly here at the physician. This is Jesus. Notice what Jesus did. He said, go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word, and Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Now, I want you to see something. Jesus healed the patient with the word. With a word, he healed the patient. This was not in the petitioner's paradigm. He healed him by simply speaking a word. Just a few short days ago, we had uh, Dr. Tom Renfro, a medical doctor who had incurable stage four cancer, was in every kind of failure Uh, organ failure, uh, bone, Uh, there was cancer in his blood. It was all throughout his body in the final stages 
of, 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 of life. He was just about to die. Follows the voice of God. Medicine, uh, they, they injected him with a medicine that could not heal him. And all of a sudden, before the medical community, literal tumors melted off of him in front of the medical community. Now, I want to, to tell you that that is a wonderful thing in and of itself. But he said something in an interview, which if you follow us on Facebook or YouTube, you can go back and watch that. We'll be posting this interview that we did with him. He said, God gave me a choice. He said, I He said, in this moment, he says, which will you be, the physician or the patient? See, all of his medical training, he knew everything that was going wrong in his body, everything that was failing. And and there, at times, was trying to take control. And yet God was saying, listen, Tom, I need you to be the patient And I need you to let me be the physician. And I am going to heal you the way that I want to heal you. He's saying, God, I can do, you can do this, this way, this way, this way. And yet God does it in a way that astounds the medical community and galvanized a community behind a miracle. And you can, you can watch that interview later, but I want to, I want you to understand something. God wants to heal us with his word. He, what, he sent his word. This is what Psalm 107 says. It says, uh, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distresses. Notice how he did it. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Here, I, I actually wrestled this week with the Lord. I said, Lord, please let me spend all Sunday on this one verse. Go your way, your son lives because I want to talk about the power of the word because I know what is going on behind God's spoken word in our life. Our bodies re- respond to it. Our world responds to it. Everything in nature responds to the word of God. Now he heals the patient with a word. His word's powerful. And here's the other thing that you need to notice about Jesus. He healed him instantaneously. John 4, 52, he says, Then he inquired the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at one, the fever left him, and the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus had said, Your son lives. It was instantaneous. And listen, listen, church, listen. Many people have stopped believing for instantaneous healing. And yet here we have it in the word. We're like, oh, maybe over time. Or maybe instantaneously healed by the word. Notice what happens when, 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 when uh, God uh, sends his word. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Listen, when you get a word from God, it will prosper in your life. Let me just put it to you this way. When you get a word from God, everybody got a word from God? Yeah, yeah. I think everybody does. Everybody's got a word from God. There are thousands of promises that you and I can stand on in this word, which biblically apply to our lives. But what do we need to do? We need to say, Jesus, I believe you can instantly manifest the benefits of your word in my life. And it will prosper in the thing that I sent it. Not, okay, God, well, this is how I see this going. Come on, let's be practical. 
There's just nothing practical about this. It's all miraculous. It's supernatural. And this is the life that he's inviting us into. Oh, this is, when, when, when God interrupts Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, he said, Jeremiah, what do you see? He said, I see an almond branch. I see an almond tree. I see an almond branch. He says, you have seen well. For, and this is what his answer was, I watch over my word to perform it. Why did you say that? Because the almond tree was the watcher tree. And at the first day of spring, it would break forth and blossom. And I want to tell you, when God finds a people who would believe what he said, who will stand on his promise, I promise you, it begins to break forth and blossom in its purpose in your life. That's what God does. This is what the physician does. This is what his word does. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Listen, the word of God is alive and active. That word active means energetic, means full of power. The word of God is alive. It's full of life. You need to receive it from him. And say, physician. I just stand on what you said. I believe what you said. Let me give you one final thought this morning. Why did Jesus come to Cana? I mean, he could have went to Capernaum where the miracle was needed. Why Cana? I don't know that I have the accurate answer to why Canaan other than he's back at the place where miracles have occurred. And this man in Capernaum is buried under all he can see is the circumstance. All he can see is his sick son at the place of death. And he thinks, I've got to go get to this place of miracles and bring the miracle back to my place. Here's why I think he was there. It's found in verse 53. Speaking of the nobleman, it says, he believed and his whole household. He believed in his whole household. Don't you, don't you love this? Don't you love this? Now, it's about 15 miles away. Cana. Capernaum. 15 miles on average from the time Jesus said it get back in the middle of the night where do they find them the next day still walking still walking I mean if it was very urgent he would have left that moment right then and gone directly there it could be 
that he believed so confidently in what Jesus had said, peace settled on him that it was done. And he said, I'm going to enter into rest and then I'm going to go. And while he was still a ways off, he meets his servant, not even there yet. And he says, when did the healing happen? One when? Yesterday. Yesterday. And he believed. Now, here's the thing. When he gets to his house, there's his son, the one who was sick. And now he's well. And the house is full of joy. And dad comes in the house for the first time. And he says this. I've got a story to tell. Let me tell you what happened. I have placed my faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And let me tell you what he's done. Let me tell you who he is. And not only does he believe, his wife believes. And not only, listen, the son, he was just 1 o'clock in the afternoon, 12.55. He's groaning. Mama's still stirring chicken soup, trying to make things better. But at 1 p.m., I feel better. He just gets up. Man, I feel better. Everybody in the house is, man, I feel feel good. Your dad went to Cana for nothing. Until dad comes in the house and says, oh, I've got a story. You know when you started feeling better? That's when Jesus said, you're going to live, son. You're going to live. You're going to live. And then he began to proclaim the life that is in Jesus. And that life got in him. It got in his wife. And it got in his son and other children's and his servants and his whole household. And the reason he was in Cana is because he said, I've got to take you out of the situation and get you the place where you're in the company of a miracle worker who will then confirm his work of miracle working power in a way that you can present the gospel and their lives be changed too. That is why I believe it had to be Cana. And I want to invite you on a journey today. I want you to come out of Capernaum. I want you to come out from that circumstance, that depression, that thing that's been weighing on you. That thing that you don't think you can escape. Because there's a transforming, remember last week, the glory of transformation. There's a transforming Savior revealed in Cana. And he transforms lives. And I want to say to you today, you will live If you let him transform you today.